This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Baglia in Stockholm, Sweden, and here on episode 54 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast, we'll be talking about sustainable development in the Arctic in a range of related topics, quite a broad topic, of course, and we're going to drill down into certain aspects of that, and uh, also be talking about the 2024 Arctic Frontiers Conference, which is taking place in the end of January in Tromsø, Norway. And here on the phone line, we actually are uh, very uh, happy to have the executive director of Arctic Frontiers, Anu Fredriksson, also former director of the Arctic Economic Council and a Finnish diplomat. So, uh, Anu, uh, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. As, as I understand, you are a, a regular listener of this podcast. We really much, uh, very much appreciate that and um, glad to finally have you on here on episode number 54. And uh, thanks for taking the time during this very busy period of preparations for the, uh, the big conference uh, taking place uh, just over a month from now. So, Anu, so uh, please uh, tell us about the uh, the overarching theme, because these these conferences usually have some sort of theme, the kind of a, a kind of an almost an organizing principle. Of course, a lot of the uh, the discussions are um, are uh, maybe uh, more continuous from year to year, but uh, you have certain themes that kind of um, set the set the tone for uh, for each conference. And this year, the theme is actions and reactions. So, I'm wondering if you tell us about that theme and how that uh, relates to the old mantra. What happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Sure. So um, in our thinking, the Arctic and the global have always been intertwined, whether that's to do with geopolitics, trade, climate change, etc. And the way our team has analyzed the situation now is that we see geopolitics and climate change being the major drivers when it comes to Arctic development right now. So that was our starting point. And we started to think about the impact of global geopolitics in the Arctic and in Arctic collaboration, which we now see ever since the start of the war in Ukraine. And the question we posed ourselves was whether the Arctic is actually acting based on a strategic direction or a strategic plan, or whether we merely are reacting to what's going on globally. Another good example, another that we discussed a lot about with our team was related to climate change. We have had the knowledge about climate change for a number of years, really for decades already. But are we really doing enough about it? Are we reacting or are we acting based on a strategic plan? And that famous catchphrase that you use, the one about uh, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, I think that, in my view, as someone who grew up in the high north, as someone who now raises her own children in the Arctic, I think that that really goes both ways. It speaks about the intertwined nature of the global and the Arctic. If we think about trade, the Arctic is absolutely dependent on having access to global markets. When it comes to climate change, Arctic is the place where the where we see the changes first. This is in many ways the laboratorium of the future developments on a global scale. But the changes that we see here are not necessarily the results of actions that take place in the Arctic, rather on the contrary. So the fundamental question really for us to think about was whether we merely are reacting or if there is a strategic plan. And this goes across all the sectors that we will be discussing at the 2024 conference. 
Oh, really interesting. And but also the, another uh, sort of a label that's sometimes put in, uh, sometimes put in the Arctic is this idea of Arctic exceptionalism, that somehow the Arctic, what happens in the Arctic is a little bit more um, impervious, uh, resistant to things happening in other parts of the world. So do you think that that's, I mean, I think a lot of people have sort of put that idea to bed at this point, but uh, does that does that maybe also inform the theme of this year's conference that um, with the Arctic becoming more intertwined with the rest of the world, that um, that, that needs to be discussed and brought out in the open and, and find some ways forward? Absolutely. And this has been an ongoing discussion ever since the start of the war in Ukraine, at least on the Arctic Frontiers platforms. I personally believe that Arctic exceptionalism definitely was a fact back in the day. But uh, now we have unfortunately lost that to a large degree. It doesn't mean that it can't be restored going forward, but it does require a lot of work. So, Anna, you're also from uh, the north uh, of uh, Finland and uh, much happening up there in terms of uh, economic development and a lot of different uh, land use issues. And certainly that's the case here in Sweden, where I'm based as well. In northern Sweden, there's a lot of talk right now about this idea of a, of a green transition and uh, I think it's also taking place in, in Norway and other parts of the Arctic as well. They're building battery factories, this idea of green steel up in up in Luleå, and um, wind power expansion, mining for strategic minerals. These are all being promoted as part of this, this sort of sustainability transition. You can put a sort of a green lens on everything that's happening up there. But some of these projects are no doubt uh, creating different kinds of land use conflicts, including with the indigenous Sami people that, um, that are concerned that uh, they will affect um, reindeer, um, reindeer migrations and so forth, and also have other uh, negative, potentially negative at least, uh, environmental impacts from all this economic development. So with your background as the former director of the Arctic Economic Council, how do you see sustainable development in the Arctic actually being achieved for real? And how can the different interests and values uh, of various stakeholders be accommodated? That is a great question and a huge one as well. I often like to draw the longer lines. I think that that's helpful. And um, I've been working with Arctic issues for basically all of my career. And I remember the boom that started with the... Uh, launch of the results of the U.S. geopolitical, no, U.S. geological survey back in around 2008, stating how much of the expected natural gas resources and oil resources that are still to be found are to be found in the Arctic. I've seen that boom. I've witnessed the more sober expectations from the part of the business community, the realization that it's not a straightforward operating environment in the Arctic. And then what I think that we are now witnessing is kind of a, a new rise of the Arctic. And that is tied to clean transition, the need for minerals. And this has definitely been accelerated by the war in Ukraine, where we see with the energy crisis that was looming in Europe, that we definitely have a need for alternative energy resources and an accelerated clean transition. So this is the backdrop of Arctic economic development. But looking through the long lines, I also see that the ways of doing business or considering business in the Arctic are changing. And I do believe that we are now in a phase where we are about to change the definition of value when it comes to doing business. We're moving away from a singular profit focus to actually embracing multiple values. 
Today's successful business activities in the Arctic, they need to consider sustainable development, human rights, environmental concerns, and local benefits. And of course, these are factors that have always been there. But there is an increased awareness that these are not just boxes that you need to tick, but that you actually seriously need to consider. And I also think that we are moving to a phase where there is a recognition that perhaps not all projects can move forward. And that needs to be understood and that also needs to be communicated. Because the fact is that uh, industrial activity will always have an impact on nature. So what we need to define here in the Arctic is how big of an impact or what kind of an impact we are willing to accept. What can be developed and which projects are a no-go. And this leads me to what I find extremely interesting in the time that we're living in right now, the concept of coexistence. Because when we are facing a relatively aggressive transition to green on a global scale, there is a global growing understanding of the need and the strategic location and the strategic resources of the Arctic. We need to define how we want to develop the region. Because I I don't believe that any cookie-cutter model that you import from the outside will work in our region. This is too special in so many ways. And this is actually something that we also look forward to discussing at the Arctic Frontiers 2024 conference. Models for coexistence, models for industrial development in the North, models of creating local benefits. I've um, had the pleasure of working with Alaska over many years, um, and I've also worked quite a lot with Canadians these past years with Arctic Frontiers. And I know that in many cases, the North American Arctic really looks up to the Nordic Arctic. But when it comes to coexistence, it goes both ways. I really personally look up to the North American Arctic when it comes to the creation of consultation processes, uh, local benefits, and really acknowledgement of the need for a good dialogue on the ground. Related to this issue is the um, sort of historical perception that the Arctic is some sort of resource periphery, some sort of frontier where you go to to extract minerals and basically just just take them out of the region and not give all that much back. And this, of course, one of the side effects of this is that the communities uh, in the north – have this, this sort of um, real um, risk of falling into these economic cycles of booms and busts, depending upon mineral prices and kind of the um, the, 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 the actions of, of uh, various companies that uh, might uh, be uh, very dominant in certain communities. How do you think this pattern can be changed now with so much interest in the Arctic, so much resources coming from the outside into the Arctic? Can this pattern be... So- fundamentally changed. And uh, as part of this uh, change, what industries do you see as the most promising for the region's future? Well, traditionally, all of the Arctic countries, and especially the northern areas of the Arctic states, have been natural resource producers. And we've done very little trade amongst each other, which means that we've been very dependent on having access to the global market, which also makes us then quite uh, prone to the volatilities that you see, the boom and bust, as you referred to. So I think one way of changing this is definitely a diversification of our business lines and also a um, diversification in terms of actually doing more of the production on site, not just shipping out natural uh, raw materials. 
The European Union uh, published its most recent Arctic strategy in 2021, and I've uh, read it thoroughly a number of times. And one thing that I've uh, thought a lot of is that the European Union writes as its ambition that we should develop knowledge-based new innovative workplaces in the Arctic. And it is a great thought. It's easy to agree with that. But making that happen in reality with the scarce population, with the long distances that we have, with what we need, that when you, what we know when you are doing innovative work is that you need a critical mass. That critical mass can be difficult to achieve in the operating environment that we have with the characteristics that I mentioned. So this is something, this is an aspect that I do think we should jointly work together on if we want to change the pattern of doing business in the Arctic. But at the same time, I don't think that everything will change. We have always lived off the ocean. That is especially true in Norway and in Arctic Norway. And I do believe that we will continue to do so. Fisheries, blue economy development, new marine species, marine bioprospecting are definitely going to both future areas but also areas that we've been doing for centuries. You also mentioned Sweden and the recent developments, and I have to give a great amount of kudos and credit to Swedes. They have really been the front runners in green transition and in utilizing the natural benefits that they have with abundance of green energy, stable operating conditions, stable political conditions, and have been able to attract significant industrial development in northern Sweden. We see that same development starting both in northern Finland and in northern Norway. Batteries is one good example where I do believe that just looking at the global demand, the Arctic will play a significant role. And then, of course, we very often speak about the strategic location of the Arctic. Um, but this is not just about sea lanes. Arctic also has a strategic location when it comes to connectivity. We can provide the shortest route between North America and Asia. And this, if done properly, can result in significant development, for example, with data centers, with new types of industries, etc. And then, of course, there is an aspect that also benefits from the geographic location of the Arctic, and that is space. Extremely interesting developments taking place in my hometown in Tromso, for example, with the development of Kongsberg satellite services. This is also an emerging field in northern Sweden, I know. So there are a lot of future fields that the Arctic sustainable development can stand on. You mentioned uh, the the um, interest um, from Asia and uh, the uh, the connections uh, through the uh, the Northern Sea Route and so forth. And a fair amount of the interest in Arctic economic development is coming from outside the region, whether it's Asia or the, you also mentioned the European Union and others, um, all kinds of different actors, uh, even Australia with mining interests. What um, and of course this this creates uh, some perceptions of of. Vast opportunity, but also a lot of uh, a lot of hand-wringing. A lot of people get kind of concerned about this. So, I mean, what do you see as as the um, the risks and the opportunities of this sort of global interest in uh, the uh, economic development of the Arctic? And do you think uh, that investments by non-Arctic countries and companies needs to somehow be regulated or balanced against local or national interests? 
Well, the short answer is absolutely. As I referred to earlier, um, I do believe that the business definition in 2023 has changed. Um, there's this concept of Arctic resource paradox that I very often refer to. It is, amongst others, uh, researched by the North University in Northern Norway. And the Arctic resource paradox means that the economic potential that comes from natural resources in the Arctic doesn't always translate into value creation locally. But at the same time, in 2023, we are now witnessing an increased acknowledgement that there is a need for local acceptance and there is a need for a license to operate whenever you do business in the Arctic. And a part of that license to operate is to create opportunities locally. And now, this might be a sidetrack, but whenever we are discussing this, I feel that it's extremely important to just set the facts straight. And the facts are that Arctic is a region that has a challenging demography. What is especially challenging is that we're losing our young people and especially young women. So we are turning into a region that is dominated by lonely young men and old people. And with all the opportunities that we have in here, with the security concerns that one has in the North, it is a trend that we need to reverse. And if we think about business opportunities, if we think about local value creation, I do believe that calls also for new forms of employment locally on all levels. Hence, referring back to what I mentioned earlier, we need to see more of the production taking place in the North as well. I do believe that this can be one way of trying to change the negative pattern that we are currently seeing. So instead of having our ambitious young people move further down south to look for opportunities, and I did myself, I did that myself as well as a 17-year-old, I would like to see them actually seeing that they have opportunities here and that they do not need to relocate to have an exciting, good life filled with great opportunities. Now, of course, with all this um, interest from outside the region, not all of it is purely economic. Um, I mean, a lot of it is linked to economic interest, uh, perhaps. But uh, some of these actors, some of these state actors and others uh, feel that uh, with more investment into the region, they also feel that they deserve or are entitled to some sort of um, voice in how the the Arctic is governed, whether it's being an observer on the Arctic Council and participating in other different uh, fora. Um, do you feel that this this is um, this is the way? Let me rephrase that. Do you feel that that's a legitimate uh, uh, demand to actually also be part of some of these governance structures that uh, are perhaps in some ways uh, linked to the economic development of the Arctic? Well, I do believe, and I do acknowledge that there is an interdependency between the Arctic and the global developments. And uh, it goes without saying that there is also an interest in the Arctic from the outside. And we also know that collaboration in many ways can be greatly beneficial. I mean, Arctic Council has its observers. There are numerous success stories within the work of the working groups. Um, international scientific collaboration in the Arctic is another great example of interplay between Arctic and the non-Arctic states. And we also see that the Arctic is a region that lacks investments. So many Arctic stakeholders definitely welcome investments also from the outside. 
But I am personally of the opinion that investments need to be first and foremost conducted in accordance with and in dialogue with the people of the Arctic. Hence, going back to the local benefits. And when it comes to sovereignty, well, that lies in the hands of the state, the Arctic states. We return to the um, to the Arctic Frontiers Conference coming up uh, in about a month and a half in uh, in Tromsø. Um, Arctic shipping and the resilience of local communities. These are things we've we've talked a bit about so far on the podcast uh, uh, today. But um, perhaps we can go into a little more detail because these are two of the big picture themes of Arctic Frontiers 2024. And related to that, uh, what sorts of infrastructure investments are the most uh, critical for ensuring a secure and resilient and sustainable Arctic? And who should manage and finance those projects? That is another huge question and another question where we see a great shift ever since the start of the war in Ukraine. Now, um, if I look at this from a Nordic-Arctic perspective, we definitely see the new security situation having its say here. Um, It just underlines the significance of keeping the Baltic Sea open for trade, for security, for defense reasons. And if you look at the Baltic Sea and you understand the vulnerability that we potentially have with with keeping the Baltic Sea open, it also opens up the question of whether we need to need a diversification of access. And I do believe that we need more cross-border routes. For example, right now, there is only one railroad crossing between northern Finland and Sweden. And if we think about the opportunities or the alternatives that we have, those are not too many. In terms of trade, uh, if the Baltic Sea should be dropped, should be blocked, then we would be completely reliant in the Nordics with having access to the sea through Swedish ports, Norwegian ports. But these don't necessarily have the capacity for increased traffic and increased uh, trade of goods, which has led me to think that actually I now believe that during my lifetime, we will see a railroad being developed between the northern parts of Finland, Norway perhaps also through Sweden, depending on where it's being built. And I think that infrastructure development going forward will have to remain the responsibility of the nation states. But we also know that these investments are super costly. Perhaps public-private partnerships could be a way of going forward. But even with public-private partnerships, we will still need the national investments to kind of leverage the private capital. But if I were to make a wish going forward in terms of infrastructure development and planning, especially now in a Nordic perspective, I would wish for more of cross-border multinational transport planning. Because I believe that the planning, investments and preparedness thinking should really happen together between several states that share border. And I do also think that we should have a holistic approach when we do that. So not just think about security and preparedness, but also the needs of trade and business community when thinking about future infrastructure developments. The plans with the Joint Variance Transport Plan, that started well over 10 years ago. And I do think that that work should have served as a model as how we think about infrastructure development going forward. And then if we take a broader panarchy perspective, 
of course, we know that there is a massive need for infrastructure development. But one thing that I especially would like to highlight is, again, connectivity. Because we see that with the increased digitalization of trade, of our lives, if we do not have the connectivity in place in the Arctic, our communities stand the danger of standing even further back behind. And that is definitely not an advantage. You touched upon the uh, rapidly changing security environment of Russia in some ways. I'm not sure, will, will, will Russia be the elephant in the room in Tromsø at the Arctic frontiers? Or how, how is that engaged with when it comes to the, the regional development uh, issues in the Arctic and the Baltic? And I'm very glad that you also mentioned the Baltic as sort of a critical part, as sort of an extension of the, of the north, of, of the, the Arctic region. How, uh, how do you think these, this changing environment, the security environment, will actually affect uh, the, these long-term regional development uh, trajectories? I think, I think that it will have a massive impact. We already see a shift taking place right now. There is a completely renewed interest in cross-border development, cross-border collaboration. Um, just seen from my place in Tromsø here, we see new ties being created, not just between the Nordic countries, but also with the other Western Arctic states. So not too long after the war broke out, there was a significant delegation from UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, that traveled to Canada to enter discussions about new partnerships. So I see a shift taking place on all levels. And then the Nordic countries are based on this concept of total defense, total preparedness. And this concept means that the totality of our societies, our businesses and our people, we all play a key play, a key role in preparedness. And there's definitely a heightened awareness, which then has also an impact on regional development. We recently had elections, local and regional elections here in Norway, and we now have a new political ruling here in Troms County. And if you look at their top 10 priorities, security, safety is amongst them. Uh, there is a growing acknowledgement of the need for preparedness. And that also shapes the agenda. Another good example comes from Northern Finland, from uh, the city of Oulu, which now is looking at preparedness related to different types of hybrid threats. So this goes across all the sectors of the society. And I also do believe that this growing regional role, this growing regional cross-border collaboration, will also make the northern regions even more significant on a national level. And of course, there's also been just in the last few days, actually, these um, defense cooperation agreements signed between uh, Sweden and the United States and Finland and the United States. So there'll certainly be a, a greater uh, American uh, presence in the sort of the security environment of of these uh, northern um, these northern uh, Scandinavian northern northern Nordic countries. And on an earlier episode of the podcast, Anu, um, I spoke with um, uh, Birte Steinbeg about uh, the geopolitical and governance functions of major Arctic conferences. They really um, are important um, meeting places, uh, opportunities to convene different types of stakeholders. What role do you, do you see Arctic frontiers playing in shaping the political, economic, social, and scientific agenda in the Arctic? I think the strength of Arctic frontiers lies in the convening power that we have. 
people still need to meet. And that is probably even more crucial now that we are still in a situation where while the Arctic Council, to my great pleasure, has resumed its work, we are still not back in the previous forms of Arctic collaboration as we used to know it. And I also think that um, part of the strength of Arctic Frontiers is the ability to set the agenda. And Arctic Frontiers really is a partnership. It is partnership between leading knowledge institutions and businesses working with Arctic issues. And this partnership is our resonating board. This is where we get the knowledge base when we start shaping the agenda. So it's all very well funded on science and on Arctic expertise. And of course, it takes place in Tromsø. And I wanted to just as a final question, uh, ask you about, um, you're not from Tromsø originally, you're from Northern Finland, but um, tell us about uh, about the environment there for those that maybe have not been there before um, and how it's sort of being shaping up to be kind of a, an, an Arctic capital, at least. I think that's the way Norway wants it to be seen with the, the Secretariat of the Arctic Council being there, Arctic Frontiers and um, the uh, Arctic University there. And uh, plus, perhaps tell us a bit about um, Tromsø as, a, as, a, as an Arctic gateway or an Arctic center. I think Tromsø definitely merits its position as the Arctic capital or as the Arctic gateway. Um, not just because of all the knowledge institutions, Arctic stakeholders that are hosted here in town, but really because of everything that takes place in here, all the work that's being done to shape the future of the Arctic. And now I'm, of course, thinking about science facing the foundation and the significance of the work that's being done both by the Norwegian Polar Institute, uh, UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, and all other research institutions across the board. And Tromsø is also a fascinating miniature of the Arctic because it's super international. It's very diverse with firm roots placed in its northerness and in the Sami and Kvin heritage. Tromsø is the largest Sami town of all of Norway. So here you really see the beauty of the Arctic in a miniature. Plus, it is a great place to live in. It's surprisingly urban. And I said surprisingly only because I made the move here myself. I had lived in Oslo for 10 years. And while, of course, a part of our consideration when making that move was to look at the qualities of life and the opportunities that exist, it still amazed me after having lived here for six months how good access you have when it comes to culture, sports, recreational activities, services, everything is within a reach. And what I especially love about Tromsø is that life is relatively easy to handle and maneuver. Uh, I live within 15 minutes of everything. I can bike to work. And that's something that I did not even consider when living in a crater Oslo area. Uh, certainly a special and an important place, actually, for, for many of these Arctic issues that we discuss here on a regular basis on the podcast. And uh, looking forward to being up there for Arctic Frontiers uh, in 2024. And uh, Anu Fredriksen, thank you very much, Executive Director of Arctic Frontiers. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. It took us 54 episodes to get to you, but I'm really happy that we finally did. Thank you. 
please be sure to subscribe to the Polo Geopolitics podcast wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to leave us a rating and review. You can also follow us on X at Polar Geopol. The music for the Polar Geopolitics podcast is written and performed by Mark Vanenbosch, voiceover by Keith Foster, and I'd also like to welcome aboard Lewis Walsh, who will be helping us with editing and other aspects of the production of the Polar Geopolitics podcast.